This archival program of Design Matters with Debbie Millman was produced for Voice America Internet Radio. New programs with better audio quality are now being produced for Design Observer. You can subscribe in the iTunes Store or at the Observer Media Channel on Design Observer. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the show that takes you inside the provocative and stimulating world of design and branding as it intersects with contemporary culture. Here's your host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. From the time I was very little, I loved to make things. I made my own coloring books, I made my own paper dolls, I made dioramas, and I even tried to make my own perfume by crushing rose petals into baby oil. I made barrette boxes out of popsicle sticks, keychains out of lanyards, ashtrays out of clay, and Halloween costumes out of construction paper and old sheets. I got quite a lot of acclaim from my family for my artistic inclinations and found that creating things gave me a special sense of accomplishment and pride. It wasn't until I got to kindergarten that an issue with my creative prowess emerged. Suddenly, without any warning at all, when I was first learning to write, it became clear that I had trouble writing letter forms. I had specific trouble with the capital Q and placing the little tail exactly in the correct place on the O, and I had difficulty discerning lowercase d's from lowercase b's, which was a particular problem given my first name. Of particular concern was my artistic and intellectual resistance to the capital H. For whatever reason, I had trouble constructing the two perpendicular lines crossed in the center by a horizontal one. I couldn't draw any of the lines straight. I had trouble with the spatial relations between the lines, and I was unable to get the weight of the three lines just right. Looking back on it now, I remember my mother getting so exasperated with me that she actually enlisted my grandmother to take over the doomed endeavor. But as I continued to struggle and my anguish turned to wrath, I experienced something that I had never consciously felt before. I couldn't do something. I couldn't get it right. Now, one while one might think that being unable to write the letter H might not have any long-term ramifications, I should point out that at the time I was not called Debbie, which is actually my nickname. I was called Deborah, and it was not spelled in the conventional way, D-E-B-R-A. It was spelled D-E-B-O-R-A-H. So, in fact, not being able to draw an H at that time was a rather big deal. And as my temper tantrum intensified over my mangled H's, my inventive grandmother made a sudden, swift realization. Since I had recently mastered the D's and the B's, I would be able to spell Debbie. The name Deborah would no longer be an obstacle to my self-expression. And thus, a new moniker was established and has lasted ever since. And I think that is when I first fell in love with the agile, malleable, and thoroughly magical acrobatics of typography and language. This tawdry affair has continued all my life and revealed itself in curious ways. When I was punished in school for bad behavior and had to write 500 times over and over why I wouldn't shoot spitballs, 
I distracted myself by attempting to write it mirror backwards. The exercise proved successful, and looking back on the admonition, I find that I can only feel grateful as the talent to write mirror backwards has only gotten better and better as the years have gone by, and now, frankly, I am rather an expert at it. Writing backwards, altering an autograph, the abstractions of these gestures intrigue me and propel me forward. I now have a persistent fascination with almost anything that contains type and text, whether they be provocative or beautiful pieces of art by Barbara Kruger or Joseph Kassuth or Lawrence Wiener or silly playthings like engraved rocks with dreamy words like peace or magic or hopeful but benign remnants like a John Kerry in 2004 T-shirt. What remains in all of these messages are the words themselves, true or not, real or not, backwards or not, the letters endure. They are all works of art, really, whether the missive is real or imagined, hopeful or delusional, the letters endure. For it is the letters that provide the foundation of everything we see and everything we experience. Yesterday I watched the Oprah episode wherein she skewered James Fry and his version of A Million Little Pieces of Self-Expression, and I was struck by something she said in this somewhat sad and falsely redemptive spectacle. She inquired how much value contemporary culture places on truth. But ultimately, I think that culture has very little to do with truth. Culture may be the reflection of what we believe is the truth, but it is our words that calibrate and distill what is true. As we deconstruct our language, searching for authenticity, it is really only our letters that have the power and the permanence to measure and express it. Welcome to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. I am so excited about today's show. I have literally been counting down the minutes until I could interview my two guests today, Jonathan Hessler and Tobias Frere-Jones. But before we get started with our conversation, let me tell you a little bit more about my illustrious guests. Since 1989, Jonathan Heffler and Tobias Frere-Jones have helped some of the world's foremost publications, corporations, and institutions develop their unique voice through typography. Their body of work includes some of the world's most famous designs, typefaces marked by both high performance and high style. In 2004, the Heffler Type Foundry entered its 16th year as Heffler and Frere-Jones. They continue to work with brand leaders in every sector, developing original typefaces and licensing fonts from its library of nearly 1,000 designs, and it publishes fonts exclusively through its New York office and its website at typography.com. Since working together, the two have collaborated on projects for the Wall Street Journal, Martha Stewart Living, Nike, Pentagram, GQ, Esquire, the New York Times, Business 2.0, and the New York Times Magazine. Welcome, Jonathan and Tobias. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, gentlemen, is it true that you design couture type? <laughs> hmm. uh, well, yes and no. I, I think you're, uh, that's the first half of a quote, which was I was talking about there being couture type and off-the-rack type, and how yes. we design is actually both. Um, our business is divided between creating things on a custom basis for clients who want a unique typeface and developing typefaces for sale through our company. So a designer might choose to buy a font that's already been made or to come up with a, uh, a brief for a typeface that can't be answered by a font that exists and have us create something from scratch. What about you, Tobias? Any different answer? Well, I was going to ask if, uh, if by couture you mean something that's 
so rarefied as to be, you know, not desirable anymore. You know, some some dress you'd see on the runway that no one would actually actually wear outside. Um, that kind of couture, no, we don't do. Uh, but couture in the sense of of taking on uh, a specific problem and and solving it uh, completely through through our craft, then yes. Now, in the um, online encyclopedia, Wikipedia, your work is described as bearing a certain New York sophistication. Would you think that that was true? Would you agree with that? Uh, I certainly, I hadn't actually heard that before, but uh, I certainly like that idea. I don't think it's anything that we've uh, consciously tried to put into our work. I mean, we've, we have a couple of projects that have uh, dealt with New York history in, in one way or another, but I don't think it's, uh, it's you know, an approach that, that we try to uh, apply to, to every project. I would agree. I mean, I don't think there's a, a conscious... Uh, well, it's hard to say being from the city and having lived here my entire life, what it even means to be uh, a New Yorker or to be New Yorkish. Um, I've, I've heard people say, oh, that looks very New York in ways that are either uh, uh, pejorative or not. And it's sort of but, yeah, I mean, to, uh, what does that mean, really? What is, you know, that looks like New York. Is that, you know, the Big Apple? I mean, how do, you know. Yeah, I don't know. Um, but, but I think that, I mean, Tobias and I both have a lot of interest in things that happen in the city that wind up in our work, um, the history of New York, uh, the history of cartography of the city, architecture and uh, environmental lettering are, are both sort of things we're always attuned to, and there's just such a riot of that uh, on these streets. It's really hard not to be affected by it. Uh, we certainly worked on a lot of projects for institutions in the city, like the Guggenheim and the Whitney, that uh, take cues in various ways from the, the, the city, uh, sort of vibe of the city. Um, and in some cases, things like Gotham, Tobias' typeface, that much more literally references an actual artifact of lettering here mm-hmm. in town. So... Um, it's sort of it's literally all around us, so it's hard to uh, hard to say how it permeates or doesn't. Yeah, I'm going to want to talk to you about Gotham in a, in a few minutes. Um, but I've read that for you both, type design embodies a happy union of diverse interests: art, writing, language, history, and above all, the homespun creations of long forgotten fine painters and midnight pamphleteers. And of course, that's something that touches me deeply. I've written quite a lot about those long-forgotten sign painters and midnight pamphleteers. Tell us about this mix and how you think language and writing influence typography. Well, for me, it's it's how I came into this business in the first place. For for many years, uh, I thought I was going to be a writer, and um, and took that as a uh, and and train myself uh, to be that. Um, but I couldn't bear to give up drawing. I just like that too much. So so drawing the type seemed to be a sort of happy middle ground, a sort of compromise between uh, between writing and drawing. You know, I'd still be working with the language, but, you know, I'd still have the, the pleasure of just working with line and, and space and rhythm and all of that. So it's, for, for me, it's uh, the language is where all of this begins. And, Jonathan, you have said that your relationship to history is like your relationship to gravity, that it's inescapable. What do you mean by that? How is your relationship to history inescapable? Well, I think people talk about typefaces as being of history in some way or not. Uh, The notion is you can design a historical revival that looks neoclassical or it looks old-style or references the Renaissance or whatever. Um, 
and somehow there's this idea implied in that that you can design a typeface that is ahistorical, that's outside the historical record. Um, I don't really believe that's possible. I think that all typefaces, all of typography is rooted in things that have happened in the past, and one doesn't necessarily need to ape uh, past styles, but it's, it's sort of like trying to come up with a new color on your own. You simply can't do it. You can think through the sort of cultural implications and the connotations of a palette and think about the ways in which colors are used and what their associated qualities are, and um, you perhaps use them in unforeseen and uh, ironic ways, but um, you're working with a known universe of parts in some way, and I feel that typography is much the same. Uh, it's still possible to make a new typeface, but it's going to, in order to be recognizable, have to reference things that have happened before. So it's sort of that wonderful play between trying to be novel and trying to be uh, have some sort of fealty to the historical record that makes typography so interesting to me. And and I don't think, if I break in for a minute, I don't think either of us see that kind of relationship to history as being uh, a restriction right. or, or, or anything like that, you know, any more than uh, a composer would feel tied down by there being only 12 notes in an octave or, or something. Um, I mean, that's... Uh, I know some designers see see history as something that would that would hold them back, but for us, it's actually something that that supports us. Well, when we come back from our break, we'll talk a little bit more about history and inescapable feelings. I'd like to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I am Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Jonathan Heffler and Tobias Frere Jones from the Type House. Heffler Frere Jones. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, so please go. Listen wherever you are. 24-hour business and financial news. Solid, focused, and informed. The leader in business talk. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Scott Biondich, Global Packaging Manager at the Coca-Cola Company, and I'm really excited about the upcoming Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event in New York City this April. I'll be there revealing the critical steps to developing differentiated and preferred packaging for consumers around the world. Design gurus Rem Kulhas and Philippe Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face. They'll deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. For more information, call 888-670-8200, visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD, or send an email to register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters, and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Hey, rise to the challenge. I look forward to seeing you in the Big Apple this April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Tune into Small Business Trends Radio with Anita Campbell every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time, 1 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel. Each week, Anita and expert guests provide a big picture view of the small business market, identifying the trends and major events driving the robust growth of the small business market. Whether you are a small business owner or a company of any size desiring to sell small businesses or reach the small business market with the product or service, Small Business Trends Radio is your resource for trends that influence the global small business market. Right here on the bottom line for business talk voice america business achieve total wealth management 
Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf every Monday at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern on Business America Radio. Three Dimensional Wealth is a show dedicated to teaching you a values-based approach to comprehensive total wealth management through practical strategies and expert advice. Take your first step down the road of financial independence. Listen to Three Dimensional Wealth with Roy Diefendorf Mondays at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 Eastern, here on the bottom line in business talk, businessamericaradio.com. The bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 3.18 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are the lovely Jonathan Heffler and Tobias Frere-Jones from the Type House, Heffler Frere-Jones. If you'd like to join our conversation or if you have a question for Jonathan or Tobias, please call 1-866-233-7861. I believe we have a caller on the line. I'm going to ask the caller to hold for just a moment. I have one quick question I want to get in before we get to opening up the phone lines. Um, We were talking a little bit about history before our break, and I've read that you both don't feel that a typeface needs to be inspired by or rooted in historical forms and that some of your most fulfilling projects you have undertaken have been inspired by conceptual inquiries rather than being dependent on traditional forms. And one of the comments that you've made about this dichotomy I find incredibly intriguing. You say that your hope is that someday you'll be able to reconcile these two extremes. And can you talk a little bit about how you could possibly reconcile the two extremes? I think when I think about the role of history in typography, it's sort of akin to the role of the orchestra in music. When one thinks of orchestral music, what comes to mind is what's been done in the past. Uh, Mozart, Beethoven, Bach, and so on. The notion that you can write new music for orchestra is never challenged by anybody. No one says, since you're a composer in the 21st century, you can't use a violin. Ah, okay. But in typography, there's a sense that either you're doing violin concerti, which are written in centuries past, or you're using new instruments to make new music today. And it's obviously a ridiculous notion. I mean, you can write a film score and and score it for a string section, but be writing in some unusual time signature and writing Mm -hmm. very avant-garde themes. I think that's one of the things I would love to do in typography, is to find a way of using all the historical material in a way that is unexpected, um, where the, the orchestra is used to create a soundtrack as opposed to merely being about the orchestra, if that makes any sense. Yes, absolutely it does. And I think a lot of the work Tobias and I have collaborated on certainly have has more of that quality than things I had done before we began working together. Uh, we did a typeface together a few years ago called Mercury. We published last year that has a, it, it sort of took off from a historical artifact, this obscure um, 18th century Dutch typeface, uh, and departed very rapidly from that and became an entirely new thing that only in, uh, in distant ways kind of has a nod to this, this historical progenitor. The, the final result is trying to interpret the forms of this artifact in a way that are very oblique. Uh, I realize this is, radio is one of the most difficult media to describe typography. And we're, <laughs> there is a certain irony to this I'm finding really rather enjoyable. <laughs> 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 uh, 
Um, Jonathan Tobias, we have a caller on the line. Gregory, thanks for calling Design Matters. Hi, Debbie. Hi, Jonathan. Hi, Tobias. Hello. Hi. Um, the question I have is something I always, I, I think I call sometimes and harp about it, um, but it, it's a cultural identity thing where I feel that marketers often uh, feel their product is in a slump, um, really, really traditional products, and suddenly they, they change it completely, like the Wrigley's package, for example, which is a pet peeve of mine. Because I don't understand why they feel the need to completely obliterate what has been so familiar and so safe um, instead of just trying something like good salesmanship uh, and not just change the look of the product. Do you, do you have problems with that? Do you think that there's sort of a lack of respect for the integrity and history of their product? I think in, in many cases, absolutely. Um, we were actually just... Um, uh, Jonathan and I were just talking at lunch today about um, what you know, great logo uh, or identity system of the past would be the next one to be Coca-Cola uh, to be torn down. Um, you know, having seen you know the changes at at at, um, at and um, AT and T and so on. Right. Um, you know, these are to take those two examples, those are uh, you know, enormous companies with uh, very complex agendas. So I'm not sure I can uh, you know, comment you know, that far about you know, why they're doing what they're doing. But just as, as someone standing outside of it, I, I have to sort of mourn the loss of, of uh, really well-crafted design that I think probably could have been adapted uh, or, or upgraded right. to, to serve um, uh, uh, more contemporary needs. Do you ever think there'll be a turnaround in that in design? I think so, absolutely. Um, many of the logotype projects we work on are essentially taking a logo from two generations past and restoring it in some way. Um, someone will say, "We've had this identity for thirty years, never really served us. What can we do?" We looked at their old logo and kind of liked it, but it's not really very useful to us. And one of the things that Tobias and I really enjoy is sort of sifting through the archives of a company and helping figure out what about their old, old logo actually had some value to them and what things maybe can be changed. Um, it's sort of like inviting a contractor into your house because you want to remodel the place, and he says, well, a fresh coat of paint and fixing that bit of molding is all you need. Um, I think a lot of identities can really be uh, improved dramatically through a very delicate touch, but... Um, but I think it's hard to know when that's appropriate. I mean, there's certainly also brands that have been much improved by uh, by a wholesale renovation of their uh, their forms. Yeah, look at BT, for example. Absolutely. Absolutely yeah, gorgeous good, redesign. Yeah, that's a good example. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Debbie, so much. We love oh, the show. Oh, thank you. Thank, thank you for you. calling, Gregory. Tobias, I wanted to talk about um, the, the typeface that you designed for Harper's Bazaar. Um, Jonathan did that. Oh, I missed, I'm sorry about that. Jonathan, let's talk about the typeface you designed for Harper's Bazaar. Now, you did this back in the early 90s. I will never forget the day when I saw the redesigned cover. Gorgeous Linda Evangelista holding one of the letters in the redesigned masthead over her face. I took my breath away. Well, you're um, forgetting the best part of the cover, which is they simply ran one headline, Enter yeah. the Era of Elegance. Yes. And I think that that. Liz Tilberis and Fabian Barron had the, the braveness to just run one headline in an era when they're running the entire table of contents, the front of every issue, is remarkable. Yeah, and, and her uh, hand was covering her face, which was holding the yeah, A, which yeah, was, was magnificent. really striking. Now, you did that when you were 21? Yes. 
Now, please tell us, how did you get that job? How did you do this? How did you make that happen? <laughs> um, Fabian called me out of the blue. Um, I, I'd obviously known his work, and uh, he called saying that he wanted, he was redesigning the magazine and essentially wanted to use Bodoni, but didn't find that it was working. And so the, the job began in a very straightforward way to do a thinned-out Bodoni. And we were looking at some of the, uh, the historical material in the magazine and found that the uh, Fermandito typeface, when it was done in, uh, in phototype in the 1950s, had been used by Alexei Brodovich on the original design of the magazine that was really so famous in that era. With that in mind, it sort of seemed like a natural thing to do, to do a proper historical revival of the work of mm-hmm. uh, Fermandito, who was an early 19th century French type founder. Um, I happened to have a facsimile of one of his specimen books and was able to really go through and show Fabian examples of how marvelous the typography had been and how a contemporary font like you know, Bodoni you can buy from Adobe or somebody um, is a really distantly debased form of this really spectacular typography um, to create a font that had uh, incredibly thin hairlines and serifs to be used at very large sizes mm-hmm. and chunkier features for smaller sizes was something we could do digitally, whereas in the days of phototype and certainly um, uh, well, the early digital fonts as well, uh, was really a challenge. To, that we had the time and um, the, the sort of appropriate support editorially of the project to do a large size version of the font, a small size version of the font, so the type would always be crisp. Uh, was kind of a rare opportunity for uh, for everybody. So that's how that project evolved. Now, when I was 21 years old, I was working as a cashier at Integral Yoga on 14th Street, back when it was on 14th Street in Manhattan. Had you, Fabian Barrage just found you. I mean, obviously he had to have found you because you had uh, a reputation that he connected with. Tell us about how he found you. I really don't know. I think he must have been just through a... a friend of a friend or something. I mean, I have a friend, Jonathan, who does like really cool type. Well, you have to meet remember, him. I mean, this is 1991 when there aren't, weren't many people doing typefaces. I mean, I, I got involved doing uh, fonts because I wanted to have fonts. I mean, the, the options when you had a Macintosh in the late 80s and early 90s were to use the fonts that came with the Macintosh, and there were 35 of them at first, and they were all horrible. And I didn't want to use Palatino and New Century Schoolbook and Bookman, so I decided to start drawing my own. I'd worked for Roger Black, publication designer, for about a year, and with David Burlow, the Font Bureau, and sort of began to learn about typography and how to make fonts, and gradually began to specialize in just doing font creation as opposed to my original goal of doing graphic design. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was doing graphic design, I'd, I'd be assigned a book cover, and I'd spend my entire time working on lettering and you know, ignore the illustration and the author photograph and all the kind of more important things. Um, so, you know, this is... 15 years ago now, there really weren't many people doing this kind of thing. So uh, I think I was more an oddball than anything else. I was the uh, the guy who was interested in making fonts. Mm-hmm. And do you think you're still an oddball? No. I mean, well, I'm, I'm an oddball, certainly. <laughs> but it, certainly the idea of doing typefaces is no longer a strange thing to do. No. I mean, no. well, one of the anecdotes that all the people in the type industry crack is that uh, it's easier than ever to board a long airline flight because years ago, somebody next to you would say, so what do you do for a living? You'd say, I design typefaces. And they'd say, what's that? And you'd spend the next four hours introducing them to the history of graphic design and typefounding and printing. Now you mention that and they say, oh, I love fonts. I love right. papyrus and I like right. that wingdings. Everyone knows what fonts are. So, right. Uh, well, and everybody knows your name, obviously. Certainly those that use the Mac. <laughs> That's For our listeners, you. Jonathan Heffler is the Heffler in your operating system, the type that you're given. What do you think about the other, some of the other typefaces that are in the sort of foundation of the Mac? What do you think about Geneva? You know, there are some good ones, but there, there, it's, the library has gotten so enormous. I, I bought my mother an iMac that I hooked up last Saturday, and as part of installing uh, the OS and installing Microsoft Word, she got like 3,500 typefaces. Really? 
Well, you know, there are 16 wow. for Chinese alone and oh, things for demonoguery yeah, and yeah. God knows what else. So um, there's just there's tons to choose from, and it's really overwhelming. Well, we unfortunately have to take a, another quick break. We'll be back. We have another caller holding, and we'll come back uh, to answer her question. I'd like to let everybody know that you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Jonathan Heffler and Tobias Frere-Jones. We'll be right back with our broadcast after these messages, but please don't go away. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Scott Biondich, Global Packaging Manager at the Coca-Cola Company. And I'm really excited about the upcoming Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event in New York City this April. I'll be there revealing the critical steps to developing differentiated and preferred packaging for consumers around the world. Design gurus Rem Koolhaas and Philippe Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face. They'll deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. For more information, call 888-670-8200. Visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD or send an email to register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Hey, rise to the challenge. I look forward to seeing you in the Big Apple this April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson talks about the nuts and bolts of starting, running, and expanding a business. From time management, leadership, sales, marketing, and customer service to office management using technology, business plans, accounting, taxes, and networking. Danielle and her expert guests share their years of experience on a variety of topics. Tune in every Friday at 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America Business Channel for Mind Your Business with Danielle Hampson. Useful tips, authoritative advice, creative solutions right here on the bottom line in business talk voice america business you work hard and you need to take time to relax and rejuvenate yourself travel is one of the most effective and gratifying ways to achieve this tune into travel connections with judy every monday at 9 a.m pacific time your host judy jackson will teach you how you can enhance your lifestyle through travel travel connections will also bring you the latest news on what's hot and exciting in vacation and travel trends so tune in to travel connections with judy every monday at 9 a.m pacific time right here on voice america business Are you feeling slammed and suckered in today's stock market? If so, then you need to tune in to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, Jordan Kimmel will train you in what you can do to beat up the big boys on Wall Street, as well as share his secrets to success so that you can buy and sell like a profit-pumping pro. Grab the bull market by the horns and listen to Profitable Investing with Jordan Kimmel. Every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, right here on the bottom line of business talk, Voice America Business. Keeping you a step ahead of the changing world of business. This is Voice America Business. We're back with Design Matters with Debbie Millman. 
If you have a question for Debbie, feel free to call us at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, here's the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Live from the Empire State Building, you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, the only talk radio show on the air focusing on issues relating to graphic design, branding, and culture. I am Debbie Millman, your host, and my guests today are Jonathan Heffler and Tobias Frere-Jones. Our lines are open. We have a caller, Wendy from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi, everybody. Um, sometimes I don't always think that newer is always fresher or better. Like, for example, the Kodak logo. What do you think of that? I think the A is really weird. (laughs) (laughs) It's so hard to say what goes into these things. Um, There are always discussions having to do with branding and having to do with positioning that are so far afield of what we do. Um, Tobias and I always like to say that we're on the raw materials end of the uh, the type business, and we supply things. How they end up getting used is, is sort of to be determined. Um, but I think the earlier caller asked about this as well, and we tend to agree that there's a lot of uh, heritage to a lot of um, identities that can be kept and in some cases shouldn't be kept. It's it's hard to say what's uh, what should stay and what should go. I, I tend to get very attached to things. I think I'm just sort of dispositionally opposed to change. So uh, when anything in the environment uh, gets replaced, I, I tend to uh, tend to cry a tiny tear. Well, it's so interesting how, as as a society, we become so caught up in knowing the way things look and them needing to be the way they are forever. It's really interesting. I think I talked about this on the show maybe three weeks ago with Chip, where I was watching the Discovery Channel, and they were talking about how when Columbus, Christopher Columbus was approaching the West Indies, Nobody on, in the West Indies actually saw the boats coming. And the reason why they didn't see the boats coming was not because the sun was in their eyes or, you know, they couldn't see distance. It was because they had never actually seen boats before, and their brains could not register what it was that was in front of them because we only see very small pieces of what is actually in front of us. Our brains put everything together for us. So the fact that our the brain had not seen anything like that before, they weren't able to construct that reality right. for the people that were watching the shoreline. Um, and I think that as, as a society, it's so interesting the way we get so attached to the things that we see that when we see something new, it becomes very disconcerting and very... Um, it gives us a feeling, I think, of, of a feeling threatened somehow, that something that we know and love is, is somehow changing or being taken away. Yeah, and it can be a kind of disorientation. Well, thank you for calling, Wendy. Sure, you're welcome. Bye. Um, guys, you, you have said that typefaces have a, a viral quality, and it's always amazing to see where they wind up and how they transform the things they inhabit, sort of what we're just talking about now about change. Um, how has some of the type that you have designed transformed the things that they inhabit? Could you could you come up with any any big changes like that? In terms of where we've seen typefaces wind up that we didn't know about, or yeah, or that, or influences, or things that you've designed going in a different direction, evolving over the years. Well, I just have to share one story. Um, years ago, Tobias designed a font called Reactor for this um, experimental type magazine called Fuse that Neville, Neville Brody uh, edits. And it's this very sort of progressive, um, it has a very progressive agenda to, to create these typefaces that are, that really exist outside of the way that uh, 
fonts that we normally create do. They're not merely designed to be used. They're designed to be very, very expressive. And uh, he did this marvelous font called Reactor that's sort of self-degrading as you use it. And um, I thought, you know, we'll be seeing this used on, on techno albums or, you know, T-shirts, some sort of punk rock way. And um, mm-hmm. years went by, and I never saw it used anywhere. And then one day, I was in Ambergris K, which is a condo development on an island of uh, San Pedro in Belize. <laughs> and I passed by this enormous sign saying, new development coming, you know, 1996, whatever, units for sale. And it was not only in Tobias's reactor font, but it was in his font reactor that had been hand-painted by somebody. Oh, my God. And I, I, I can't imagine why... Well, I can't imagine why anybody would choose the typeface for that particular use. I mean, it's this sort of lovely tropical destination, and they choose this, you know, messed-up industrial font. Um, but it would, be, it would be so lavishly recreated with, you know, they'd, they'd outline all the little contours and pencil and painted them all in. It was just... It, it was just absurd. And That's, but it's heartbreakingly beautiful. Oh, it's great. I've got yeah, photographs this, of it. It's yeah, this, is, this is a design that the, it deliberate, deliberately looks burnt and broken with this very um, uh, intricate kind of charred uh, contours. And, and actually, I think up there with the hand-painted version of it, uh, at, a, uh, at a conference in Berlin, I saw someone who's actually uh, painstakingly cutting a mask uh, to sandblast these forms into a, into a piece of granite, which I thought was, I don't know if that was uh, just strange uh, <laughs> well, or, or something. I guess it depends on who you are if you think it's yeah, strange. That, that, you know, a type that was made from the start to destroy itself as you use it was being literally cut into stone um, as, you know, I don't know what would be more permanent and, and static than that, but that was actually the last thing that that typeface was meant to be. Well, I think you guys like dichotomy from what I've read about you both. Um, we have another caller on the line, Kim from New York. Thank you for calling Design Matters. Hi there. Um, I always like to ask important people how they feel their education influenced and prepared them for their real-world experiences. And Tobias, in your case, I remember seeing you around the computer lab at school all the time, so I'm especially curious to hear your take on this. Uh, so I, I take it you went to RISD. I did. Okay. Um, well, in... Well, in, in my case, I, I went to the Rhode Island School of Design uh, with the explicit purpose uh, or the explicit uh, uh, agenda of going to the graphic design department, learning how to draw typefaces and graduate and be a typeface designer. Um, I, it was only after I actually started my education that typeface design isn't really taught there, and at the time it wasn't taught anywhere. Uh, so I had to rely on my own free time and, and my own uh, my own interest to sort of teach myself as much as I could and use um, you know, my my time at RISD to basically try out designs as I was trying to figure them out. Um, but but it was it was still you know, it's a really valuable experience you know to see uh, how type gets used even if you know I didn't learn uh, at RISD so much about how type gets drawn. Uh, it was still a really critical foundation for, for doing what I do now. Well, thank you for calling, Kim. Thank you. Oh, wait, well, what about Jonathan? What about Jonathan's education? Oh, I learned on the job. I um, When I was a senior in high school, I knew that I wanted to be involved in typography, but I couldn't decide... Wait, 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 wait. So you knew when you were a senior in high school? I did. I, um, I, I've, been, I've been paying attention to type since elementary school. Probably. So what happened in high school? It was like, wow, I think I want to be a type designer. Um, I think in high school it was what I did. saw the... Yeah. I saw the first issue of Spy Magazine, and um, 
that same year, I saw a, a copy of How magazine I'd never seen before. This marvelous Michael Dorette illustration on the cover just, just called out to me, and I realized this is something that I, I want to do. Um, but graphic design interested me only kind of peripherally. It was really typeface design that I wanted to do. But in 1988, there was nowhere to go to study that. I mean, there are now these marvelous programs at Yale and Reading and the Royal Academy of The Hague. Um, at the time, there was a choice between going to an art school and studying four years of art, part of which might be might involve typography, or going to somewhere like Columbia or Yale and studying library science school. And neither of those things were really quite what I wanted to do. So I decided to take some time off and get some professional experience and see what I could do in the meantime and found myself actually working in the industry in that year. So the, uh, the college decision got pushed back further and further and further uh, until the present day, actually. So I'm still, uh, Good for you. still learning on the job. Good for you. Thank you for calling, Kim. Uh, I understand, gentlemen, that your office is, quote, unquote, littered with rescued works from dumpsters in the back rooms of antique stores. So tell us about some of the more strange or unique things that you have stashed away there. Uh, They're looking at each other ner- nervously, <laughs> listeners. I just want no, you to like, know that. Well, Jonathan's looking at me. I think that's um, – <laughs> we, we both collect uh, uh, antique books, specimen books, you know, lettering manuals and so on. That's one of the uh, – one of the ways we uh, we first met, however many years ago that was, um, I also collects a number of other you know kinds of artifacts you know for their for their lettering, um, you know banknotes and stock certificates and um, various bits of ephemera. Um, these days have uh, that's, I've extended that to uh, enamel signage. Uh, so my corner of the office is slowly getting piled up with. Sort of Old street signs from from Germany and um, you know, old relics out of the New York subway system and and so on and so on. Just for some some color commentary, when Tobias describes his corner of the office being piled up, it's like that final scene in Raiders of the Lost Ark where the endless boxes into a vanishing point. <laughs> it's basically that, just just filled with just crazy crap. So yeah. So you guys are, are kind of like what I would consider to be like the, the Jagger and Richards or the Lennon and McCartney of the type world. So give us some give us some backstory. Do you guys ever fight? Well, I mean, in the years before we were working together, um, Tobias worked in Boston and I worked here in the city, and, and technically we were competitors for the same jobs, but of course we've been friends for years. Somebody would call and say, you know, I, I'm commissioning a typeface, and I'm talking to a bunch of type designers, and I'd say, oh, are you calling Tobias? Maybe a pause, and they would say, well, yes, we're talking to Tobias as well. And I realized we were sort of competing to get the same projects. Uh, and, of course, when one of us got them, we'd always call the other and be discussing, you know, sort of pinch-hitting as an editor to find out what uh, what could be improved in the typefaces we were doing. Um, but I think the closest it's ever come to rancor or to blows is at book fairs. Um, uh-huh. Tobias mentioned we both collect specimen books, which are essentially like um, – they're old catalogs of fonts from centuries past. And uh, since they were replaced every year with new specimen books, much like a phone book, they were just discarded. So they're very, very hard to find. And uh, we would often go to book fairs together and be hanging out in the front and you know, talking about work and catching up. And then the doors would open, and all of a sudden there'd be this very sort of hostile moment of, which way are you going? Which way are you going over here? I'll take the left. I'll take the right. I'll see you later. And we'd, we'd catch up reaching for the same book on a shelf. So... So eventually we would look at the sort of the floor plan of where all the stalls are and just draw a line down the middle, say, you know, anything on this side of the room you can take and anything on this yeah, side of the room. Yeah, but even that line placement was always subject to negotiations. It was very uh, yeah. sort of like a you know, Korean peace talks or something. Oh, and so it never came to, you know, fisticuffs. No. Not really. Well, of course, now we're in the same office. We either have two of the same of all these obscure books or one of us will actually break down and buy the thing that the other gets to consult. So that was a uh, that was a big reason to begin collaborating six years ago. Yeah. 
I think as, as far as design goes, um, I think even though our our personal tastes uh, or sort of where we're exactly where we're grounded in history is, is often different, um, it, we tend to agree with each other on, on most sort of issues of design. I think there's one long-standing disagreement about the lowercase t. Lowercase t, yeah. What is it? What is it? What is it? Uh, well, it's, it's how, how tall the top of, of that character is above the uh, uh, above the X height. Uh-huh. Um, Jonathan prefers to draw that a bit shorter. I prefer that a bit taller. And we've never been able to sort of work that out. Uh, <laughs> I have to say, guys, that this this moment, just this moment, reminded me of the Saturday Night Live skit about the radio show where they're talking about food <laughs> and the episode where they're talking about salt. <laughs> salt. <laughs> we're coming back and we're going to talk about salt. Yeah, that's, that's a far, far cry from being the, uh, the Jagger and Keith Richards. No, <laughs> hardly, hardly. Um, no, I admire you so much. Um, we have to come back after our break. Um, I want to let everybody know that they're listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman on Voice America Business. I'm Debbie Millman. My guests today are Jonathan Heffler and Tobias Frere-Jones. We'll be right back to talk about the letter T. Fresh, dynamic, and totally prepared for continuing business education. Business Talk Radio. Voice America Business at voiceamerica.com. Hi, this is Scott Biondich, Global Packaging Manager at the Coca-Cola Company. And I'm really excited about the upcoming Fuse Brand Identity and Package Design event in New York City this April. I'll be there revealing the critical steps to developing differentiated and preferred packaging for consumers around the world. Design gurus Rem Koolhaas and Philippe Stark, as well as brand leaders from Method, Nike, and Target, will go in-depth into the most pressing issues we face. They'll deliver cutting-edge ideas that demonstrate brand growth and bottom-line impact through innovative strategy and design. For more information, call 888-670-8200. Visit www.iirusa.com forward slash BIPD or send an email to register at iirusa.com. Mention that you heard about the event from Design Matters and you'll receive a $200 discount off the standard fee. Hey, rise to the challenge. I look forward to seeing you in the Big Apple this April 24th through the 26th at the Waldorf Astoria Hotel. The challenge of change comes as ramped up due to the advent of information age and the interconnectedness of global community. In a high-tech world, the ability to embrace change, adapt, and respond accordingly is key to personal and professional success. Talking Change with Ann Powers, airing every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific, explores the hows, whys, and what to do when faced with change. Embrace the new reality. Adopt transition into your personal power portfolio and tune into Talking Change with Ann Powers every Wednesday at 3 p.m. Pacific time right here on the bottom line business talk voice america business learn to thrive not just survive in business and careers unleash your full potential and greatness with the thrive factor unleashing your potential with tactical coaches and success masters host dory willer and eva gregory dory eva and their masters of thriving expert guests inform educate elucidate and inspire with leading edge information the thrive factor unleashing your potential with dory willer and eva gregory broadcast each thursday at 9 a.m pacific noon eastern on the voice america business channel the thrive Factor. Success and inspiration at the click of a mouse. The bottom line in business talk. 
Voice America Business. Welcome back to Design Matters with Debbie Millman. If you would like to be a caller on the show, dial toll-free at 1-866-233-7861. Once again, that's 1-866-233-7861. And now back to the host of Design Matters, Debbie Millman. Welcome back. It is 349 Eastern Time, and you are listening to Design Matters with Debbie Millman, live from the Empire State Building in New York City. I am your host, Debbie Millman, and my guests today are Jonathan Heffler and Tobias Frere-Jones. If you'd like to join our conversation, our lines are open. Please give us a call at 1-866-233-7861. Before the break, we were talking about the letter T. <laughs> we were lamenting the fact that we started so late in the show talking about that lovely letter that really we should have or could have used the entire hour to discuss the letter T. But we're going to save that for off-air conversation. Um Gentlemen, I want to talk to you about why you name certain types, the names that you do, like why Fibonacci, why Dolores? What are the backstories to some of these luscious types? Well, when when I first started drawing typefaces, um, uh, because this this field is, is uh, such a small one and, and just about all the type designers that are working all know each other in some way, um, I met uh, a, a lot of people I admired for years uh, just very soon after I began, uh, I began doing this. And uh, every time I would meet, you know, a big famous designer like Matthew Carter, I would ask him uh, what the most difficult part of doing a typeface is. And I was expecting him to say, oh, it's drawing the S. Or the T. Or, you know, italics are, are just hell to do. Um, but every one of them said, picking the name. Interesting. And, and Jonathan is nodding his head. It, it is. It's very hard. Well, and yeah. and and I, I came to agree with that. And um, I think I don't know. There, there are a number of reasons. Uh, I think in, in a kind of philosophical way, uh, I think a typeface isn't sort of complete. It hasn't sort of reached its full potential until someone has picked it up and used it for something. Mm-hmm. So uh, so so when the designers trying to put the name to the typeface, they're trying to name something that, again, in a, in a sort of abstract way, is actually incomplete. So it's, um, I think it's difficult to, to, to put a name to that. Um, one thing that, that we always try to do, and, and Jonathan and I spend a very long time picking out the names uh, for the typefaces, um, is to not only have the right kind of uh, sort of evocative quality, but also show off the letters that are most distinctive mm-hmm. and most telling about the design. That, um, that was actually how Gotham got its name. Um, we wanted uh, a typeface, uh, sorry, a, a name that would have an O in it, so you could see its, its geometric form. Oh, I see. Um, and uh, a couple of other letters, uh, like a G and, a, and an M, I think. Um, and I was looking at a list of names that had uh, a G, an O, and an M. Um, Many of which, actually, almost all of which, were completely inappropriate for as names or typefaces or things about goats. And <laughs> goddamn was one of them. Yeah, goddamn. Good. Yeah, was, goddamn bold. Yeah. Gnome. Yeah. Gnome. Yeah. Gnome italic. Um, and then just just on this on this list um, was uh, was the word Gotham, and sort of thought, thought about that for a minute. And then it's 
struck us both that, well, actually, that works for a number of different reasons that, you know, not only formally, but also, you know, for what what the, what the name means and, and where the, the source of the design is. And then there's, of course, the serendipitous aspect of right. where the type has ended up. Yes. One tell us about that. It sort of reinforces that. Um, well, I think be, that the backstory of where it came from is sort of equally important, as well as uh, where it wound up. Well, the the original uh, Gotham began as a as a commission from GQ magazine, and the uh, the brief was to create a a family of geometric sans serifs that could be used for a number of purposes throughout the magazine, and um, we wanted to be sure that we were doing something sort of distinctive and new. And the geometric sans serif has been. Uh, done quite a lot. There, there are a lot of things that would fit that, that bill. Just for the, the non-typographers listening in today, when someone says design a geometric face, it's like saying design a four-wheeled car. Um, you're, you're talking about a, a pretty big category. Mm. So, yeah. Far um, more difficult. What's that? Far more difficult. And um, as both Jonathan and I grew up in, in New York, and over the years we had noticed pieces of lettering uh, around the city and earmarked them and wanted to return to them and actually independently we had both noticed the lettering on the front of the Port Authority bus terminal um, just uh, over on uh, 42nd Street and, and 8th Avenue um, and we ended up using that as uh, a sort of jumping off point for this for this design uh, not only in its, in its sort of geometric vocabulary but also its, its sort of attitude which has more to do with engineering than kind of traditionally described Typography. And now, where is Gotham? Oh well, it's everywhere. I mean, it's certainly. It's, where well, is it most famously? Well, it, I, I think most sort of touchingly for us, it was um, when um, Pentagram designed the uh, the cornerstone of the Freedom Tower that's being built on the site of the former World Trade Center. Uh, they chose Gotham to to be uh, the font that's used uh, because it has this sort of subliminal association with New York lettering. I mean, it feels like it could be the sign of a liquor store, a bar, a mm-hmm. parking garage, and of course that's because it, it came indirectly from those kinds of quotidian letters throughout the city. So um, it's it, it's really the, the font has really come full circle, being from the city and then being back to uh, back to serve the city in a variety of ways that we really we really like as New Yorkers. Yes, tell us about your experience working with Martha Stewart. Well, one or both of us have, have been um, drawing type for Martha Stewart for, I think, about 11 years now. Um, and um, I should back up and, and say, as Jonathan was saying before, we, we used to uh, work as competitors, but mm-hmm. we talk to each other all the time. And um, in, in one conversation, we were um, talking about kinds of, Projects that we'd like to work on at some point, but haven't gotten a chance to, and and they're normally very closely guarded secrets. You never tell somebody, "Oh, I have this great idea to do this someday." But right, right. But, but at some conference and drinking, and uh... and and one of us mentioned that uh, uh, that he had this idea about working with the kind of engraved lettering you would see on old uh, uh, nautical charts and atlases and so on. And there's this long pause, and the other one said, "Well, actually, I've been thinking of doing that too." Mm. Uh, and and actually, secretly, I had been uh, stockpiling old old atlases and nautical charts, uh, just hoping that someday uh, I would get a chance to do something with this this uh, this map lettering. You're a bit I, of a pack rat, aren't you? Tobias? Yes, I am. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. I have all kinds of stuff. 
But um, uh, fortunately, uh, when uh, just after we uh, we began working together, uh, we began a new project for Martha Stewart that uh, we saw we could actually uh, uh, fill with this with this map lettering project, uh, and that uh, went on for uh, for a number of years and became a very large uh, and intricate type family called uh, Surveyor uh, that you can you can see in the magazine now. Well, we're just about finished with the show, unfortunately. A couple of the pop culture quiz questions uh, before we end. Um, when was the last time either of you yelled at someone? Oh, goodness, that's never very long for me. Tobias, <laughs> <laughs> how about you? <laughs> uh, I, I drive to work in the morning, so I have ample opportunity before 9 a.m. to yell at people. <laughs> uh, yeah, I think, actually, I, I think I, I, was, I was yelling at someone who was being in service a sort of street barker routine uh, in front of the Adidas store on Broadway um, across the street from our office. Um, uh, I think I, I went downstairs and yelled at them because they just wouldn't shut up and they're directly in front of uh, uh, under our windows. But um, yeah, I think that was the last time. Okay, and uh, last question. What font do you hate more than any other? It could be one you designed or one that you didn't. Rota semi Rotus, yeah. Not comic fans. No, Rota. It's just no, the world's worst typeface. No, I, I can I can stand most of that family, but it's the semi serif that I, I don't know what what he was trying to do. Sadly, he's passed away, so we can't ask him. But whatever it was, it didn't work. Okay, well, gentlemen, thank you so much. You've been just wonderful, wonderful guests today. Thank you for having um, us. Thank Thanks. you so much for being here. I'd also like to thank Voice America Business for giving me the opportunity and a special shout-out to Brian Travis and Ruben Colomb. Finally, I'd like to thank the staff and my partners at Sterling Brands, including Lisa Grant and Jen Simon. Please join me next week with my very special guest, Bill Grant. Happy birthday, Rich. And until next week, please remember, we can talk about making a difference or we could make a difference, or we can do both. I am Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you next week. Voice America Business would like to thank you for tuning in for Design Matters with Debbie Millman. Be sure to listen every Friday at 12 Pacific Standard Time for another exciting hour of Design Matters. Right here on the bottom line in business talk, Voice America Business.